All right, today we are joined by Gloria Purvis, who is a, uh, I don't know, I guess as close as you can get to being a Catholic celebrity, if that's a thing, but she has her own radio show uh, (laughs) that she does every day called Morning Glory. Um, And Gloria, welcome to Vernacular Podcast and Decretal Catholic, this crossover episode. I'd love to hear Mm -hmm. a little bit more from you about your story, because it's a very cool story. You do a lot of things. I wouldn't do it justice if I were to try to summarize it for my listeners. So can you tell us who you are? Yeah, I'm really a Southern girl at heart. I was born and raised in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm a convert. I converted to Catholicism when I was 12 years old. In a non-Catholic family, I was the only one. <laughs> That's incredible. That, I kind of laugh. But um, my parents were very, are very big into education. Like, you have to have a good education. And, and, and in Charleston, South Carolina, my parents decided that the best place to get an education would be in Catholic school. So from first to 12th grade, me and all my sisters, we went to Catholic school. And um, at the time, since we lived down in downtown Charleston on the peninsula, there were two Catholic schools, both of them black. We just was, it was not segregated by law because I'm not that old, but uh, they just were segregated uh, all black Catholic school. And I went to the cathedral school and it was there at lunch when I was 12 years old. We had a, a food fight. And um, but we were good kids and we were like, we can't have the janitorial staff clean up after us. So we got mops and brooms and everything and cleaned up the cafeteria. But after lunch, we had religion class with the principal of the school, who was a religious sister, Sister Carmelita. And she was not impressed. Um, can I tell you that we cleaned <laughs> up? She was not. She was not having having it at all. And that's when I first learned about public confession because Sister Carpolita asked each one of us directly if we participated in a food fight, like individually. She would call your name. You had to stand up and say, yes, Sister Carmelita. She was like, Gloria, did you participate in the food fight? And I was like, yes, Sister Carmelita. She was like, sit down. Yes, indeed. So after everybody confessed, she was so upset. She says, children, this is unacceptable. We're going over to church right now. So we lined up and I don't think I breathe. I don't think I took one breath from the time that we stood up to the time that we sat down in church because I think we were just afraid for our lives. We had just upset Sister Carmelita. So so while we were in church with her in the lower church of the cathedral church right there in Charleston, and they were having adoration. And Sister was on her knees and, um, in front of the monstrance. And I just remember still being able to see her from the back, you know, because she was kneeling down. And she had her fist in the air, just like, Lord, give me the strength. <laughs> you know? And I could see her little habit switching around. I was like, oh, my gosh, we have really upset this, this nun, um, this religious sister. But it was at that time while I was sitting there quietly because I didn't want to die, that um, my body was engulfed in fire. I mean, I still remember the sensation, even though it was so, such a long time ago. I was completely engulfed in flames while we were... Um, there at uh, Eucharistic Adoration. And I just had an immediate knowledge that this was real. It was true. It was live, alive. And um, it changed my life because a few days later when we had religion classes, the Carmelita came in and she says, all right, let me get all the Catholics. I think, you know, it's time I have to prepare you for confirmation. And I went up to her and I said, sister, I think I'm supposed to be a Catholic. And she was like, no, uh-uh. <laughs> Go home and ask your parents permission. And I was not, I mean, I, I was very obedient, but for some reason I went home to them and I informed them that I was becoming a Catholic. I didn't ask permission. And I just remember my mother saying, oh, you're going to become a Catholic? And I was like, yeah. She says, okay, you're going to go to mass every Sunday, every holy day of obligation. You're not going to eat meat on Fridays. And you're going to pray your rosary. That's it. And I was like, okay. And that's pretty much how it was. Wow. That's your story reminds me of St. <laughs> Philip Neri. Cause I think he had similar um, experiences really? of fire. Yeah. In front of the blessed sacrament. Oh. That's so amazing. You know, I did not know that. <laughs> Thank you for telling me that. I had no idea. Um, yeah, no, they were, you know, I'm, I'm very thankful that my parents said yes. I imagine it's a little bit strange dropping a 12 year old off to mass, yeah. you know, every Sunday by herself, but you know, they did. And I went and, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just so thankful to God that my parents said yes. And I didn't have, um, um, opposition in my family. In fact, I had a lot of support for my faith. And then years later, all my sisters converted, all our husbands are Catholic, all the grandkids are Catholic. Oh so, yeah. That's, <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. What a blessing. 
Well, Gloria, obviously your story, as you just alluded to, your story didn't end there at the conversion. So what, what have you done no. since then? Since, since, so, since the age of 12, what have then, you done um, for the church, outside of the church, all of those things? Oh, well, I went to college. I went to Ivy League College. I lived abroad. I learned other languages. Um, I had a really fantastic career in corporate America, but decided, you know, I was praying because I was like, Lord, this is just Mm-mm. I mean, I made a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. A lot, a lot, a lot of money. And in fact, I think when I was in my 20s, yeah, I was in my 20s. Um, I, I remember getting a bonus check for $80,000 when I was in my mid to late 20s. And uh, my career only got bigger and bigger and bigger from there. And at one point, I was just so much like, this is really, I'm not happy with this. But at the same time, I was also very active in church ministry. And I was surprised I didn't get fired at work because I did a lot of evangelizing on my job. Not that I sought people out, but people would come and say things. And so I would just share my faith, but I kept getting promoted and promoted. And I was like, okay. But um, there came a time where uh, I just had been asking the Lord to please, please get me out of here. And so I was able to do that. And um, meanwhile, I was still, you know, when you say yes to the Lord, he will make opportunities for you. I was heavily involved in the pro-life movement, sidewalk counseling outside the abortion clinic, um, also doing HIV AIDS ministry, but in a way that wasn't really, um, my husband and I did it together in a way that wasn't really popular because we preached abstinence and fidelity (laughs) in marriage. And so it was such a, uh, surprising thing for people to meet other people in HIV AIDS ministry that weren't about condoms and all that stuff. So uh, that was that was interesting. And then uh, young adult ministry as well. Meanwhile, all this was happening while I was still in corporate America. And uh, then I just started getting in, uh, invitations to go and speak on you know things about the church's teaching on human sexuality, women, um, all these kinds of things. And I always said yes. And little did I know that the Lord was trying to prepare me to be in media. So um, fast forward to 2012, was it, with um, uh, President Obama's Health and Human Services mandate that required, uh, you know, artificial contraception and abortion-inducing drugs to be carried by the employer, to be given to, you know, dependents on the policy, yada, yada, yada. I was invited to a speaking engagement at the Catholic Information Center. They were doing a panel of all women talking about it. And I didn't want to go. Okay, let me just tell you, I had a little (laughs) girl. I'm tired. My husband came home from work and he was like, okay, come on, let's go. And I was like, babe, I don't want to go. And he's like, I was like, I'm tired. He's like, I'll help you. Come on, you don't know what a God has planned. And sure enough, you know, <laughs> you can even, if you watch this video, if you watch the whole video at the Catholic Information Center, you can see me like I'm thinking and writing down notes because all these thoughts are just coming to me. Um, <laughs> and look, the Lord is so funny. All these thoughts are sort of coming to me. So I'm writing things down and um, I just sort of speak off the cuff from what had been coming to me. And that video went viral. And it got a lot of people trying to find me because I have no internet presence. I, I don't have a website or anything like that. And um, that led to me saying no to a lot of things. So I'm like, I have a little kid. But then EWTN had reached out to me about doing a morning radio show. And I said, no, because I'm not a morning person. And then my <laughs> husband was like, don't be lazy. <laughs> don't be lazy. I'll help you with the baby. And he did. So my husband's really the reason I could do Morning Glory because he's been a rock and so much support. And prior to that, I forgot to mention, I had done a, a television series for EWTN that had really had arisen out of prayer. And Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, who's my co-host now on Morning, Morning Glory, uh, heard me speak in Indianapolis to, to the National Black Catholic Congress. And I was speaking about abortion. And he introduced himself to me and was like, oh, my gosh, you know, he was just really moved by, you know, what I was talking about. And he had been encouraging me to do a series for EWTN. And I really was like, I'm not doing that. So I guess he must have been bugging me for about 10 years. And then I had inspiration for the series when I was in prayer. So I told him I had I got inspired that the Lord wanted certain things done. And so I wrote up this thing and sent it down to EWTN and they were like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what we want. So <laughs> I tell you, it's funny. I don't know. <laughs> so none of this is planned. None of my, you know, career media, radio, television, none of it's planned. It, it was not at all what I thought I would be doing in my, with my life. 
I think that's great though. I mean, and it's to me a sign of the Holy Spirit at work. Yeah, and, exactly. And credit to you for maintaining openness. Yeah, to allowing that. yourself that just you just being docile and listening to the Holy Spirit. Oh yeah, sometimes I'm not as agreeable. <laughs> Let me say, sometimes I'm like, Lord, what? What do you want? Are you sure? Well, I mean, even did, just, did you really want me to do that? <laughs> even just the example of you not being a morning person, right? I think. God sometimes calls us to these things outside of our comfort zone, outside of what's easy for us. And so not to draw a direct comparison between that and going to Nineveh, but it's, there's something there, right? Like Jonah's, Jonah's called to Nineveh because it's hard and doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He probably doesn't like to travel. doesn't like those people, et cetera. And and the Holy Spirit moves, moves our hearts to, towards things that are, you know, you know, spontaneous and outside of our comfort zone, because that's what God calls us to do. Yeah. Everybody knows early, early mornings are outside my comfort zone. Even my family laughed at the idea that, of, that I'd be doing an early morning radio show. Now, five years later, I kind of laugh because I'm like, Lord, I don't want to be a morning person, but you've made me one. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, so, but yeah, I, I guess that's pretty much kind of my story. There are other things we'll probably get into as we talk that may come out or whatever, but you know, that's pretty much like uh, my background. and. Um, yeah. So. Well, I love it. Thanks for that introduction. We we, we reached out to you sure. because you're a prominent Catholic voice on a number of topics, but in particular, you're especially prominent on the topic of um, race and discrimination. And mm. yeah, racial justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're obviously in this very impressive national moment. I was just talking with someone on the phone, actually, uh, another white person like myself, and this person mm-hmm. was asking me my thoughts on what's going on right now. And uh, Mm -hmm. this person's on the conservative side of the political spectrum, we'll say. And Mm -hmm. um, I I really don't know his thoughts in depth. We didn't have much time to talk about it. But I said that I'm actually pretty hopeful about what's going on right now, because I think there are there are aspects of it, of this national moment that we can point to and say are not productive, like violent riots that are destroying property, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But for the Mm -hmm. most part, there are peaceful protests going on all over the place. There are meaningful Mm -hmm. and profound discussions going on about the place of the police in our society about criminal justice more broadly and most importantly Mm -hmm. i think there are are more discussions now than ever about systemic and structural racism and i think yes if we can start there gloria because i think i'm I'm gonna include myself here what does that mean yeah exactly what does that mean mean? because it does have an academic meaning, but I can explain it. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say that just speaking for myself, I think I have, mm-hmm. I've come into this, a better understanding of systemic and structural racism over the past few years. Now, that's not to say that yeah. I'm like, I've arrived at all. I'm really looking forward to learning from you. And so, you know, this conversation for mm-hmm. my listeners are not just for my listeners, they're also for me. I'm trying to learn from you. So I, I have oh, a lot to please. learn. All right. <laughs> but a few years ago, I think I was at the point where I didn't really think systemic or structural racism would exist. And so like you just told us sure. your story about how you received a, a big bonus in your late 20s. And so I would say, OK, a young African-American mm-hmm. woman in America can receive a really large bonus in the corporate America. Like, how can you tell me that there is mm-hmm. systemic or structural racism? <laughs> now I recognize that as a load yeah. of baloney. Yeah. Right. But. But, yeah. but let me just, yeah. let me just like put that argument out there. Right. Because that was me five, let's say five years ago, maybe, maybe 10 years ago, but that was sure. me at one time. So what is systemic slash structural racism? How, how are we to right. understand it? So um, it's really a system in which they say public policies, institutional practices, cultural representations, and other norms work in ways that perpetuate racial group inequity. So it might say you look at things in our history and in our culture that have allowed certain privileges associated with whiteness and certain disadvantages associated with color to endure and adapt over time. So it's not something that a few people or institutions choose to practice. Instead, it's a feature of the social, economic, and political systems in which we all exist. Now, some people might say, huh, huh, what? What does that mean? And and they need examples. Um, so and, and also, let me step back and say this, because I know some people get defensive and say, well, wait a minute, if it's a system and a structure and it's a, are you saying I'm racist? No, I'm not saying any individual person is racist. Yes, we do have racists in our country that do certain things, but I'm not saying that every single person, every single white person in this country is racist. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we have an inherited system 
of inequity. So for example, people might um, say, well, what was an example? And I've been actually tweeting about that, giving up examples of system- systemic racism. And actually one is a good example is this recent Supreme Court case that was heard and it was dealing with uh, non-unanimous juries in Louisiana. So uh, a Louisiana law that had allowed non-unanimous guilty verdicts originated in Louisiana's 1898 Constitutional Convention, the purpose of which, according to one of the committee chairs, was to establish the supremacy of the white race. And so one of the things that they did by saying they would have non-unanimous guilty verdicts was they did so because African-American men were enfranchised, had the right to vote, and they would then be able to be on juries. And so to to basically dismiss that uh, Black people on the juries, they came up with non-unanimous jury provisions. It limits the influence of Black jurors on the outcome of criminal trials. And this was by design. And guess what? just made it to the Supreme Court for a review about how long that's been to 2019, right? Because I think they just came back with the decision overturning the law. That's crazy. So wow. That's, isn't that crazy? But that's, so that's one example of systemic racism that served to limit the purpose of even having a juror, particularly Black jurors, um, another one that people are probably not aware of, another example of systemic racism is where our own federal government, the Federal Housing Administration, uh, basically furthered segregation efforts by refusing to insure mortgages in and near African-American neighborhoods. That's a policy known as redlining. And um, at the same time, while they were redlining black neighborhoods, they were subsidizing builders who were mass producing entire subdivisions for whites with the requirement that none of the homes be sold to African-Americans. Oh, my goodness. Is this recent history? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is, yeah, this redlining stuff is like in the lab. This is from the U.S. government. The FHA was created in 1934. And um, yeah, so it's not that long ago. If people are interested in reading more about it, they can read a book called The Color of Law by, what's his name? Something Rothstein is the last name. But it basically looks at local, state, and federal housing policies that basically mandated segregation. Wow, without calling it segregation. So That's crazy. Right. They called it redlining because when they drew things on a map, they had a red line around black neighborhoods. Oh, Oh my goodness. So it's... it's, 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 um, for people to look at these things, and this is what they mean by systemic racism, by certain policy, public policies, practices, all this stuff that has a, an effect. So, yeah, I mean, when people talk about systemic racism, they're not just, you know, making things up. Another one which you might find interesting is um, the Navy, the U.S. Navy basically had an open policy of barring African-American men from becoming officers. They were forced by, you know, the president at the time, um, I can't think of who he is, gosh, my mind is going back, to uh, admit black men to officer candidate school. But they set the men up to fail. I think they picked 16 uh, black men and they got them into uh, the officer candidate school. But when they got there, they gave them nothing. Like they had no equipment to give them any other training, none of that stuff. They were pretty much... Uh, segregated, like almost, uh, what'd you call it? Uh, living essentially under house arrest in their own part of the barracks, wow. right? Living on their own. Now they would have to endure all kinds of things. If you, if you could be provoked into showing rage or striking out at somebody, they could immediately kick you out of officer candidate school. So there was one incident where these uh, the officers that were supposed to be training these guys t- told them line up for a medical exam. They say, okay, strip down, get naked. So all of the all the African American soldiers or navy navy men got naked and had to stand at attention. Attention. Well, one of the men had white splotches on the skin at the top of his penis. So uh, a white pharmacist mate grabbed the ruler and yelled out, "Hey, look at him! Look at this here Negro! Look at this man, half white and half black!" And they were like. Hey, how'd you get this? Why does it look like that? And every time he'd ask him a question, he'd wrap him on the penis with his ruler. Oh my goodness. That's calling horrifying. him, causing him to wince with each whack. And the guys provoking them were certain that, you know, this is gonna really enrage these guys. It's gonna be a riot and we could kick them out. 
but the guy didn't respond. They even called him boy. Hey boy, where'd you get this thing from? And you know, all he did is he kind of, he made a joke. Well, see, sir, I was raised in a white neighborhood. And um, his classmates, you know, nobody laughed out loud. They kind of smirked, but yeah. realizing they wouldn't be able to get the guy to break or any of his, uh, his you know, fellow African-American candidates to break. They left in a, in a fury because they really wanted these guys to fail. Now, it gets worse. These guys make grades on their candidate you know, I guess scores that were like no other in officer class history. Their marks were so good that some people in Washington, D.C., did not believe that they could be real. So guess what? They made the men take the exams again. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the score. Now, here's the funny thing. The second time they took the exam, they scored even higher, yeah, <laughs> eventually earning about <sighs> right a 3.89 out of a 4.0 for the entire course. So they, you know, they were outstanding. The top of it, the top history and in history of officer candidates, they just were collectively the top of the top. But guess what happened to those 16 men? Let 12 of them become officers. Even though all of them passed the flying colors, they only let 12 of the 16 become officers. And then um, then they, a 13th guy, they made him the lowest officer rank ever. So he was below, he'd be above non-commissioned men, but was still below ensigns. He was the lowest officer rank. No official explanation was given for the decision to do that to these men. And even after they became officers, guess what? They were not given the same privileges. They were treated very much with disrespect. And even in history, they never really, uh, they never really, you know, promoted what these guys did. And they refused to let them, these black men, have command over white men in battle. So they were never allowed to go into battle. So this is from the U.S. military, wow. the Navy. Uh, so this is an example of systemic racism. And I think some people talk about, but we're a meritocracy. If you can do your best, well, you see all the obstacles were put in place uh, to make sure these men wouldn't succeed, were not given proper, uh, you know, um, what do you call it? Supplies, equipment, support, teach, you know, even the, the, the guys that were teaching them really, they said, didn't even care. They took it as a joke, like you guys will never make it. Then when they did super well, I was like, oh, no, a Negro can't do that. Make them take the test again. Then when I did even better the second time, instead of saying, well, all of these men have, you know, excelled, they only let 12 through. And then one of them, they made lower than, you know, the lowest rank, right? And, uh, and then still, after they earned everything, were still not even treated like with the privileges that an officer would have. That's this so is our country. Yeah. And so when people say things like, oh, systemic racism is just some made up lefty stuff. I'm like, this is history. I mean, it's not made up. Um, and I can give you another example about policing, which I think will probably shock you. But I want to let you ask if you had anything else you wanted to ask or say. Well, no, I'd love to hear your policing example. I, I was just going to say that, uh, again, a prior me, I think, would have said, yeah, I, that's, those examples are all horrible and egregious and horrific. But as you said, this, you know, it's history. And so that's history. And, and since 1964, mm -hmm. Civil Rights Act, all of that has gone out the window, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. But mm -hmm. the, the, the former me missed the most salient point that we can't erase 350 years of deeply yeah. ingrained systemic racism uh, played out mm -hmm. by attitudes and actions um, in a That's matter exactly right. in, in a matter of fifty years, <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't happen, right? Um, and so the make I, any sense? Yeah. Right. So, so the way that I've um, I found it most helpful to think about systemic or structural racism is independent of any of the current attitudes or behaviors or actions. And I, I think there are honestly mm -hmm. plenty of racist ones even today. But even mm -hmm. even putting those aside oh, yeah. right now, um, the like the edifice, the whole foundation has been built on this system that disadvantages black people. Um, oh, yeah. And, mm -hmm. and the, the vestiges of that system remain. That's the structure that we're talking about when we talk about structural racism. Mm -hmm. and, and Sally and I have been thinking mm -hmm. about this a lot over the past few days, especially. We watched this um, documentary uh, by Ava DuVernay that you may have seen called 13th about the 13th Amendment. 13th. Yeah. You know, I've never seen 13th. It's very good. It's excellent. Very good. It and, is excellent. Mm -hmm. When you said the police example, it made me think of that because even today, there are, I mean, our criminal justice system is rife with examples 
of how oh, yeah. of how that structural racism persists to this day and constantly disadvantages oh, yeah. the black community and not just black individuals who commit Absolutely. crime but any every time you put a, mm -hmm. a black man in prison for possessing you know half a an ounce of marijuana or whatever and you put him there with yeah. man mandatory minimums you're taking him away from his family for x many years right and then yes. and that has trickle down effects to the yeah. whole the whole family etc so um it's, it's been a real eye-opener for me but i'd love to hear your story about um policing that you mentioned Russ, well, so i don't know if people realize that and you can go to um the law law enforcement lawenforcementmuseum.org and they talk about the origins of American policing coming out of slave patrols. There's a great episode, the most recent episode on Throughline actually, which is a podcast um, through NPR, I think, is all about the mm -hmm. the origins of the police force as as coming from basically the Ku Klux Klan and slave patrols. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, and they talk about this at the lawenforcementmuseum.org. I mean, it's not a secret, but when you hear how I how I'm about to describe it, just think about what you saw in the in the video. If you saw that, gosh, it was so horrible with them, um, with George Floyd. So, slave patrols serve three purposes: um, to chase down, apprehend, and return to their owners. Quote: Runaway slaves to provide a form of organized terror to deter slave revolts. And number three, to maintain a form of discipline for slaves who were subject to summary justice outside the law. So, in other words, slave patrols. Uh, summary justice could be whatever they thought they needed to do. It, it could be lynching, right? It could be lynching. They could beat you to death, anything. And it was one of the many ways and types of social controls imposed on enslaved African-Americans in the South. Now, the physical and psychological violence took a lot of form, uh, forms, including the overseer's whip, uh, intentionally breaking up families, deprivation of food and other necessities. And then another thing they would do is rent you out um, well, let me not say that they would employ slave catchers to track down runaways, like privately employ them. And slave patrols were extremely violent. They beat and terrorized. They were, and they were, guess what? Legally compelled to do so by local authorities. It was considered a civic duty to beat African-Americans. A civic duty. I mean, so this is what happens out of policing. Now, even when, um, so understand that the history of police were grew out of this you know, movement of slave patrol people. And um, they said one of the things that they noticed with um, out of the movement of these like slave patrols is these white patrollers had this fascination with what African-American slaves were doing. And so they were constantly watching, catching or beating slaves, surveilling them. And they're saying, even though these patrols lost their lost lawful status, you know, in 1865 with the end of slavery, it didn't mean their status and influence died out. And they're saying the distinct parallels between the legal slave patrols before the Civil War and the extra legal terrorization tactics used by vigilante groups during Re Reconstruction, like most notoriously the Ku Klux Klan. And so you you find out all these things and you're just like this is crazy and i think there's an author that did a, a thing yeah on through line where they talked to um what's his name khalil i'm so sorry i'm so bad can't remember anything yeah no you're right i don't remember what his last name was either but he was fantastic he told his own personal story about police violence and 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 he wrote a book uh i believe and i can't think of the name of the book where he says basically over 400 years black people have been criminalized and he tells parallel stories, I think, about the history of policing in the North and South mm -hmm. in his book. So um, he says that, you, from what I understand, the stories may be different, but the thing that they share in common is the use of brutal force to control Black Americans. And so this, is, <laughs> I mean, so this is the, or what has sprung, modern day policing has sprung out of that, with those attitudes, those practices, that um, mission, if you will, to subdue and control black people by surveilling them, by, by beating the, you know, what out of them, um, by terrorizing them. And it is all to make sure that they understand to stay in their place. Well, yeah, that's, uh, it's, <laughs> right. I mean, there, there's so much to dive into there, Gloria. I, I do appreciate the yeah. quick overview. Mm -hmm. um, and, mm -hmm. and I'll ask you at the end of this conversation too, for some resources, because I do encourage our listeners to, read up on this stuff more and think about it. I think it is challenging oh, yeah. when we, we come to grips with the legacy mm -hmm. of our own ancestors. I mean, this is coming to the fore again with the whole oh, yeah. like tearing down statues debate, right? 
Um, you know, there oh, are, yeah, yeah, yeah. With the Confederate statues yeah, and whatnot. Yeah, I have yeah. no doubt. And people are now trying. Exactly. Mm-hmm. No doubt there are there are many white people in America today who do not harbor racist attitudes themselves, but who come right. from, descend from slave owners, right? And and might descend oh, from sure. people who have statues erected of them today in cities, right? And the, and the question of yeah. like how we um, individually and collectively as white people reckon with that legacy mm-hmm. is, is, a, is a challenging one. Um, I think... Yeah. If we can now kind of pivot our discussion to what the church has to say, sure, sure. what the gospel oh, yeah. can shed light on in this situation. I mean, I think uh, one thing that we Catholics can be very grateful for is that we have um, the Eucharist to unite us. Um, and we have, we have the uh, sacrifice of Christ on the cross to forgive us. Amen. Um, yes, indeed. And so I really want to really want to talk about this um, a bit more. I think maybe the first thing to ask is, the kind of the state of the Catholic church in America. Hmm. I don't, I haven't seen the demographics on how many, uh, how many members of the Catholic church in America are black. Um, but I can speak anecdotally that, um, mm-hmm. the, the parishes that we have been to are, are not very right. So um, right. we mm-hmm. had a parish in Texas that was almost entirely white. Um, our parish mm-hmm. here is a little bit more diverse. We have several Afri- African American Catholics in our parish. Um, but, I think that's the first thing, right? Like how, how do we fix that? Well, here's the thing. I mean, that church has a terrible history. Like right after they didn't, they did, our bishop did not reach out and try to evangelize the newly freed, you know, uh, African-Americans. And so guess what? We did it for ourselves. And that's how you end up having the National Black Catholic Congress. It grew out of uh, efforts by a layman like Daniel Rudd having an African-American newspaper and really telling Black people, suggesting that Black people give the Catholic Church it's a fair say, you know, that this, these are their teachings and, you know, we're all children of God and so on and so forth, even though the bishops, you know, decidedly did not reach out to African-Americans. And then if you think about it, even with uh, Venerable Augustus Tolton, how he had to leave the United States to become a priest. He had to go to Rome because no diocese in the United States would accept him into their seminary. Wow. Um, so our, our, our church has a history that it needs to, to grapple with as well. I mean, there's a book by Stephen J. Ox, I think, called Desegregating the Altar and the Struggle for Black Priests. And, um, you know... <laughs> So that's, I think, part of the reason why we don't have like bursting numbers everywhere. But um, and also the black church itself, Protestant churches, uh, when they had a chance, formed churches that were had black leadership, black members, uh, black pastors. And I think some of that, you know, was for survival, really. Um, And uh, being welcomed as well, coming into church and being able to be welcomed. But so our, our church needs to work on that. And I can tell you, as a Catholic myself, I've gone to places and it's clear people don't want me there. <laughs> you know? um, That's so it, sad. It's really clear. It is, but it's just the reality of being a Black person in America that you might not find sanctuary anywhere, not on the job, not in the church. <laughs> not, you know, it just, that's just the reality of it and lets you know how big a demon is behind racism. You know, I really believe that this is a spiritual battle um, that we're going to have to engage on the spiritual level as well as the concrete, you know, and the physical. But understand that there, this is, this is, because this is so contrary to God's word. You know, he created us in his image and likeness, all of us. And racism says, no, God, you're a liar. Some of these people are beneath me or beneath or should be, you know, and uh, that, that's contrary to God's word. And it's a sin. And the church, one of the things that has disturbed me so, because, you know, I was really more so known for being very much pro-life, you know, people know that. But now people seem to be a little bit surprised that I'm also very much um, support racial justice. I always have. But in the church's mind, it seems like there is a divide that the faithful people are pro-life and the crazy dissident Catholics are for racial justice. And I'm like, what are you talking about? We both have, it's the, the gospel imperative to defend the poor and oppress the vulnerable is what animates both, you know, our pro-life um, activities and our activities for racial justice. I mean, I don't understand how people in their minds can separate these things. Then I realize it's, what's infecting it is the idolatry of political party, right? 
Um, people want me to say one way or another. And I'm like, look, I follow Jesus. Okay. I'm not beholden to right. any political party. Right. And so I'm going to follow Jesus wherever he takes me. I'm so glad you said that, Gloria, because there's something that I've noticed recently. Uh, and, and some of my listeners might even get frustrated at me for saying this, but I've noticed that there's a, um, there's a, a troubling intersection between people who call themselves devout Catholics and then people who align themselves very strongly with one political party. And in the example, that, oh, yeah. in the examples, or at least 95% of the examples I'm thinking of is people who say I'm a devout Catholic, therefore I'm a hardcore Republican and support all the mm-hmm. Republican policymakers, mm-hmm. et cetera, you know, without, mm-hmm. without yeah. any caveats. And that's a really, that, which is a problem. It's a huge problem. problem. It's a huge problem. Like there's a huge yeah. disconnect. Because I think to be someone who is truly and fundamentally Catholic is not to be part of any political party. Yeah. Well, you will not feel comfortable in either one, right? Exactly. Because both of them are going to have major shortcomings uh, according to our beliefs. And what, you know, (laughs) so that's the one thing I don't understand is this kind of blind fealty to party. And I'm like, you've made an idol out of political party, especially if you're unwilling to critique and push back on your party on principles that uh, are not for the common good. You know, so it's just, we've got to talk about that. Your mention of the word idol, I think is really important. When you were talking about how um, racism is a demonic attack, uh, I think it's, I Mm -hmm. totally agree with you. And, And I think it's because it is a, a direct assault on the conception of the human as the imago dei, you know, the image bearer of God, yes. the, the image of God. Yes. And I think if we look through yes. the church's history, really through the world's history, um, the mm-hmm. most heinous sins and evils have come uh, as a result of two different types of lies. The first type of lie is about the nature of God. And the second type of lie mm-hmm. is about the nature of humanity. And we can mm-hmm. include in that things like abortion. We can include in that things like mm-hmm. gender ideology, et cetera. These things that like totally, oh, yeah. totally miss the conception of the human being as made <laughs> in the image of God. Um, Amen. It, but racism, obviously the same exact thing there, right? We're, we're failing to see yes. our fellow human mm-hmm. beings as made in the image of God. It's, it's one of the two great lies um, that's at root of basically all the evil of human history. And, you know, I'm so glad you said that and you put it so beautifully. That is exactly the case. And I thought, you know, think about how St. Francis was that he um, hugged the leper. Was that it? Or a very poor person? Yeah. I was like, you know, so Jesus might be right there in front of us and we're repulsed because there's somebody that, you know, of that group. You know what I mean? And I was like, oh, what opportunities have we missed to love the Lord, you know, to serve him. And um it's, it's uh, instead of, I think we have to have the attitude of asking the Lord to help reveal our brokenness to us, particularly also in this area of race and asking to help us, give us the grace to do the work, to make the repair, you know, to repair these human relationships, to repair our society, to, um, even if it's the work that we have to do the rest of our lives, you know what I mean? Same thing that we, that's the one thing I didn't understand. People who believe that there's an industrial of the unborn systematic in this country cannot believe that there's such a thing as systemic racism that they, you know, yeah. I mean, talk about a blind spot, right? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense to me, but it, I, I, I see people lining up like just, I I don't understand it to be honest with you. My husband and I never understood why there was a pro-life ministry and a social justice ministry and why they were separate. Yeah. And as soon as we had a chance at one church, we just combined it all. And the pastor was shocked. Everybody was shocked. We're like, this is how it's going to be because we can't be meeting twice, okay? (laughs) (laughs) You know, we can't do this twice. And so we would do, um, and we became leaders in our diocese of just getting all these churches together, these disparate groups, and and trying to do things together, service outside the um, uh, abortion clinic, and then doing things for the maternity homes and um, to help pregnancy centers and then going down to the homeless shelter, going to uh, uh, serve at a place where people have special needs, just loving the human person all around, you know, from womb to the tomb. And this is what we're called to do. We just could not understand where these ideological groups would make people unwilling uh, to serve the Lord 
you know, because <laughs> ultimately that's what they're saying no to. When you refuse these things, ultimately you're saying no to the Lord. And I rue the day if I am standing in front of him, he says, Gloria, why didn't you do so-and-so? And I'm like, because Lord, I didn't like those people over there. Yeah. They didn't pass my purity test, you know? Yeah. Well said. How, <laughs> you know what I mean? He'd be looking at me like, okay, I'm about to, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you don't, you, who, why? And if I say I love him, how dare, how dare I not pick up my cross and follow him? And believe me, I'm, I'm getting a beating right now for this all, all, you know, being very much clear to the entire public that I am you know, believe in racial justice because it, but I don't care about that reputation. Oh, it's not going to pro-life bona fides. I don't care about that because what matters the most to me is what's the Lord going to say? What's pleasing him? What is he calling me to do? Um, I, I just, it's just so plain to me. I just, I really don't, um, I really don't grasp how people can uh, just abandon the Lord in this way. I just don't understand it because that's what they're abandoning. Thanks for your courage, Gloria, in, in being a pro-life warrior who can also courageously speak out on racial justice issues. I mean, it blows the mind that these yeah, things that, are that they, viewed as like hold them together. Yeah. That's, oh. <laughs> right. but, but I think we need to change yes. the paradigm on that. And, and we, by we, I mean yes. the church and the church has to be a part yes. of that conversation. Yeah. And I want to hear from you about mm-hmm. practical steps that the laity can take. Um, in the movement towards racial justice. But first I want to ask about our priests because we don't hear about this from the pulpit. And I'm Which wondering, is a problem. yeah, why is that? And what, what can, what can priests be doing and what can they be saying from the pulpit that they, that they aren't? Because I've never heard a homily on racism. Oh yeah. Let me tell you something. I am. Um, that's like a number one complaint of so many African-American Catholics I talk to and, and African-American Catholics to like left the church because they're like, I can't go to mass on Sunday and have it be an occasion of sin. Mm. You know, that if they've had in their neighbor, in their area, a very highly publicized shooting of an unarmed black man. And they say they go to church and they expect to hear something and they never do or worse when they do hear something, it's sort of finger wagging, like you black people that better not be out there riding, but nothing about, you know, the call to why this is an affront to human dignity, why mm-hmm. we would be upset about it. Um, and why, you know, the work of repairing uh, relationships is that of all Catholics and really nothing even sort of challenging white Catholics to examine themselves, you know, and their attitudes and beliefs and practices. And um, so I think what our priests need to do is get some courage to actually preach about what the church teaches on racial justice, you know, what the church teaches um, and, and, and what that means for us. I heard a lovely homily um, that someone shared with me of a, from a priest in Kentucky, I think it was, and it was on um, Trinity Sunday. And it was so simple and beautiful. And it talked about the inner relationship of, you know, God and how we're supposed to, in our human relationships, try to image that relationship in the Trinity, you know, meaning the kind of closeness we'd have with other human beings and the way in which we should treat them. And that race is, is an affront to that. And then they went through like all the objections people might have, like, oh, father, this is political. Why are you talking about George Floyd? Blah, 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 blah. And then he does something I thought was remarkable. He walks them through an examination of conscience um, with regard to racism. That's incredible. During mass. Yes. It it was a white parish, white priest, and it was the most tender, beautiful uh, examination of conscience. And then he said, you know, there's a black parish on the other side of town. Why don't you go to mass on Sundays there sometimes? And in fact, why don't we plan to do a picnic with them? Maybe. Do you know that priest got tremendous amounts of negative feedback? Oh, oh no doubt. From, yeah. from, <laughs> tremendous amounts of negative feedback. And I listened to it. I was like, this was the mildest, sweetest, you know, invitation to improve human relationships. But, you know, it was really something to see. Yeah. That sounds like a model for all priests. You know, if I could, if I could say, you know, to this, please, can we make a little outline and pass it around in every diocese, you know? (laughs) Well, it's funny you say that because this was on our minds on Trinity Sunday, this, this whole topic. And I think it was on Mm. the minds of everyone in the pews at our parish, which is, which is back in public masses. And I was just thinking any pastor who's not using 
this Trinity Sunday perfect opportunity to talk about the image of God, us being made in the image of God, you know, the distinctiveness yes. of persons within the Trinity and yet the, yes. the total union the between them, yeah. uh, yes. the consubstantial mm-hmm. nature. I mean, you're, you're missing a huge opportunity to talk about what we are called to as human beings. Um, so I'm glad that at least someone did that. He did. He was, I think a little nervous, but boy, was it, it was, it was just beautiful. It was a beautiful homily that I got to listen to somebody shared it with me. And um, I also have to tell you, people were that there some pastors have a very negative attitude about um, everything with George Floyd and the protests and whatnot, and and pass it on in their bulletins. A number of people have sent me copies of their bulletins that clearly show the parishes like the pastors like this is our parish. We have nothing to do with those protests out there, even though they're peaceful or whatever. That they just clearly like that's over there with them and we're over here with us and we're going to protect our space. You know, one one more thing that occurs to me, Gloria, on this Uh like uh, avoiding politics issue. I think in America, and I think it is pretty unique to America, we have elevated our political leaders so much and placed them up there as idols that every every issue then becomes a political issue. So I hear people talk about things like this and they say, yeah, like we'll talk about... you know, we, we could talk about that, but I don't want to get political. And like, what is political <laughs> about right. a man being murdered on a street yeah. in America? Like, what is political right. about right. systemic racism? Right. Um, there's like right. political. I mean, I, I guess there's it's political in the small piece sense, but there, like, there's nothing partisan about right. that or there shouldn't be anything partisan about that. So we have a tendency to just view everything like that through the lens yeah. of, you know, American politics, you know, capital P. Wow. Um, and that's really sad because this, if there's anything that the church has to speak to the secular culture about, it's these types of issues. It's it's the nature of God. It's the nature of man. Amen. It's a moral question, right? How are we going to treat our fellow human being? Um, and some time ago, way long time ago, what I think it was when Philando Castile was sh- shot actually, was it in Minneapolis? It was right around in uh, Minneapolis. It was in 2016. I wrote yep. an article basically saying what's missing from the national conversation on policing is the Catholic voice. You know, what is when, sh- what, what, what is acceptable force? What kinds of things should we be uh, expecting from a policing? Where is the Imago Day in police training? I was just talking with a priest before I talked to you guys, and he was like, we've got to do something about chaplains for the police departments. Who oh, are these yeah, chaplains? definitely. Because there has to be a spiritual component in there for the officers as well to help them in the kind of work that they do, which is difficult, dangerous work. But nonetheless, to keep them grounded in the faith and belief in God and, you know, to have those uh, spiritual uh, armor when they go out to do their work as as any of us would want to have is, is really important. Uh, for policing. And I, you know, I, and all the discussions, you know, I've never, I myself even hadn't thought about what are the chaplaincies like, but that's, that's very important too. Something that to be looked at, but yeah, I think also the idea that we wouldn't uh, as Catholics have a say in how the state treats its own citizens is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> you know, Of course we would have a say it's all for the common good. Yeah, exactly. And to just to just think we wouldn't we wouldn't go there because it's politics. Like no, that's that's so silly. It, it's 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 cowardice. I'm sorry. It it's cowardice. It's cowardice. And that's another thing that I talk about. People, uh, you know, I've talked to people, and the only thing they're concerned about is the burning buildings and the looting and the rioting. And I was like, well, wait a minute now. <laughs> Come on. A, man a man was, was murdered. murdered in the yeah, street. Yeah, exactly. We can always rebuild. You know, these businesses that, you know, they can always start again. And in fact, the community can help them, but we can never get George Floyd back. Never, never. I mean, if we want to talk about, you know, have a debate about like how the House Ways and Means Committee chooses its leadership, (laughs) like that's that's politics. That's like, you know, capital P American politics. But if we are talking about these substantive things that affect how we live among each other and interact with each other, that's not politics. Let's not let's not let the politicians have sole authority over that stuff. Let's right. talk about it and let's have the Catholic Church exercise its powerful voice on these matters because it has the right things to say. Well, and it speaks out on abortion. I mean, how is that different? I just don't so. understand. Right. I mean, yeah. that's just as quote unquote political. And there's you're they, have, right. they protest just as much. <laughs> but then right, when it comes right. to racial justice, we can't talk about that. 
Yeah. Which is, you know, and it, I think part of it, too, is um, unfortunately the way things have been so politicized, they see racial justice as a lib, you know, those libs and we got to own the libs. And I'm like, do you not realize, <laughs> you know, you can't, it's just, it's just, it's just silly to me. I was like, so you're abandoning the gospel to own the libs? Come yeah. on, y'all. Uh, listen to ourselves. You know, and I also do think sometimes there's a discomfort or a, a, or they don't believe that it's real or that, you know, they see certain things that seem, you know, somebody was talking to me today, you know, like, I just can't believe in systemic racism because, you know, I see these these uh, people out there making people get down and kiss their feet. And I'm like, OK, look, don't what about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What about is a huge problem, right? Uh, yeah, I was like, let's stay focused on the issue of systemic racism, because whatever they're doing over there doesn't undo what is currently in place. You know what I mean? So don't get wrapped up on that stuff when the fact of the matter is we got to talk about policing and systemic racism and try to, you know, uh, like you say, remake things that are supposed to be correct and, and, the, and the better way. But those are difficult conversations. And those are things that, that, that you got to do to work. You know, we can't just say, oh, yeah, voila, it's done. And the other thing that I say to people, too, when they complain strictly about the looting and the rioting is like, just tell them to stop. And I'm like, well, you know, that's lazy. Pope Paul VI says, if you want peace, work for justice. OK, you can't just sit up there in armchair quarterback and complain about it and say they need to just stop bringing the troops and squash them. We've got to work for justice if we want peace. The, uh, Martin Luther King has this long quote. He's not, he's not uh, condoning rioting and looting, but he says people have to understand. Like he says, I'm not going to just sit up here and condemn it without people understanding that that's the language of the unheard. Yeah. And so you've got to, if you don't want this again and again and again, we have to work for justice for all of our citizens. Well, on that point of working for justice, which is fantastic, um, what what do you think are one to three things that that the laity or that just our listeners um, in or out of their parish can do to promote racial justice? Oh, first thing that people need to do an interior examination. Honest to gosh, they've got to do an interior examination of themselves and be honest about their brokenness, you know, and ask the Lord to again. I really believe you got to start there. Secondly, the other thing that I would do is some people come to me and say, can I donate money to an organization for, for, you know, and I was like, you could, if you, you know, if you want to make that kind of reparation, no problem. But I would suggest if you want to make reparation, make reparation for the sin of racism, do do a chaplet, a holy hour as frequently or as, or as infrequently as you like, but the offense against God from his children with this sin is going to be, you know, got to do that. And then the third thing I would say is, you know, if you have ministries that are involved in racial justice, get involved in that. Also, you can ask every diocese is supposed to have, or every state where there's a diocese is supposed to have a Catholic conference. Start telling the Catholic conference, you want them to lobby on these things that matter, like in police reform, was looking at the police union contracts and when they get ready to negotiate, uh, you know, in the city or the state to make sure they get rid of all these provisions in the police union contract where they wipe the records of misconduct or don't share them, or whatever, don't measure them, or that they rehire people who have been fired for excessive use of force. Um, looking at uh, how they screen candidates coming into policing. So those are more the wonky things, I guess. Um, the other thing I, I would say people need to do is they need to start learning what systemic racism is. You, I would suggest a book called Slavery by Another Name. It was a Pulitzer Prize winning book. I think PBS even has a, a documentary, um, The Color of Law, you know, which talks about the, the things that I was mentioning with the history of housing. You guys seem like you're already on the money with through line listening about the history of police, policing. Um, also, there's a book that some people might find hard to read, but it talks about systemic racism as experienced by black women through racialized sexual violence. And it's called Dark End of the Street and it's by Danielle McGuire. That would probably be it might be a hard read, but it's where people can read up about how that is a tool of uh, oppression and terror that was inflicted on the black community. And um, 
Gosh, I'm sure there are a lot of other books, but these are the things that are coming to mind right now. Yeah, those are great resources. Thank you, Gloria. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. I hope. Oh, you know what else? I heard the book Grant by Ron Chernow was very good because you then see the history of how um, the South worked against every effort to help free black, free the freedmen, how the South completely worked against and undermined every effort to help freed African-Americans. Great recommendations. Thank you. I will yeah. say mm-hmm. I've read, uh, I've read the Washington biography by Chernow and he's an amazing biographer, but it's super long. So <laughs> <laughs> it's a big, thick book. It's true. My husband's a history buff. So nice. That's nice. how I, I knew <laughs> he, he likes Ron Chernow's Hamilton and Grant, and then I forget what else. He's, yeah, my, and my husband also knows every president from the first one. He can tell you by memory. He can tell you all wow. these facts about them from the first one to, to Trump. Impressive. Just, I, yeah, it's I, really I feel something. like I used to be able to sing them all because I memorized the song in elementary school and I've long <laughs> since forgotten it. So <laughs> <laughs> he had, he had the, as a kid, he had a, these, like, I don't want to call them dolls, but like these figurines of every president. Oh, nice. Like bobbleheads so, or something. No, they were like literally like little miniature likenesses of the president. So he'd have like, he'd have the, he could tell, I can't even remember. I'm so embarrassed to say the ones that have the same last name, he'd have them fighting the other ones that have the same last name. (laughs) He had um, somebody that had big bellies. He had them in belly bucking contests. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So as a kid, he's like, oh yeah, you know, he knows all these guys and can tell you quotes. It's really an interesting nerdy thing about him. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Me too. Well, Gloria, thanks so much for the time today. If if there's a resource that we mentioned on the podcast for our listeners, we're going to put that in the show notes. Uh, yeah, and we'll also okay. link to uh, to your radio show there, Gloria, if you oh, want to hear more of Gloria's work. And for my Credo Catholic listeners specifically, um, I'll, I also just want to ask you to, in addition to doing all the wonderful things that Gloria mentioned, um, ask for the intercession of the Venerable Augustus Tolton on this, the first Roman oh, Catholic yes. priest in America yes. who Gloria mentioned had to go to Rome to be ordained. He was actually ordained in the uh, Basilica of St. John Lateran, which is one of my favorite mm-hmm. churches in the world. Um, Isn't it beautiful? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely beautiful. Um, so ask for the intercession of, um, father Augustus Tolton, um, cause yes. he's a wonderful man on his way to mm-hmm. sainthood. Hopefully it happens soon. Um, yeah. but I also, I just want to say Gloria, and I don't want this mm. to like come across as a, you know, virtue signaling or performative exercise, but I just mm. want to say from Sally and I, that we're sorry for not like pay, paying more attention to this earlier. I think that, um, so you can say that, but I think we could have known, like, I think that there are a lot of our. Um, African-American brothers and sisters who have been trying to tell us this for a long time. Mm. And um, I mean, I can speak for myself and just saying that I've had blinders on. Um, And I think it's not like the scales have fallen from my eyes just in the past few weeks, Um, but I think it's accelerated the process. You know, I think like me, me coming to maturity, coming to um, maturity in faith has been um, certainly, you know, a way in which the Holy spirit has worked on my heart and Sally's as well, I think. Um, But just I think the past few weeks have really like convicted me about how mm-hmm. I need to be doing more on these issues and I'm speaking for Sally here too I mean we need mm-hmm. to be doing more we need to be speaking up more we need to be more vocal and educating ourselves I mean there's just so many resources there's no excuse there's a lot there are a lot of resources and I would say even watching the PBS documentary Eyes on the Prize you can probably get it free from the library it's old but it's a nice visual walkthrough of the civil rights movement in the United States and to see these images and to see what people were doing to children, you know, it just reminds you this wasn't that long ago. These people are still alive, you know, um, but I'm glad you're willing to stand up and say something and do something and take it upon yourself to try to, you know, be educated. And another thing that I was, uh, will say not to, you know, if you need to edit this out, that's fine. If it goes over too much time, but there's a disturbing thing that I'm seeing on social media among prominent pro-life devout Catholics is that they're sharing a video, um, that, is so odious to Christianity and it's about George Floyd and it basically calumniates the the black community lies about what the black community values and then tells, um, you know, all of this man's past brokenness is it run-ins with crime and whatnot in a way to demean him. And it relies upon this, these racist tropes that are so obvious to me. And I have to say it was some, several people sent it to me to watch. And it was, I had to stop. It was like, I was, I felt traumatized watching 
this horrendous discussion or, 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 or tirade, if you will, by this one woman about a murder, this man that was murdered. And it's somehow that, you know, almost like he deserved it, although they kept saying, but he deserved justice. But the real message wasn't that. The real message was that this was a dirty N-word criminal that, you know, why should we be surprised he got what he got? And the Black community is so almost what they say, pathological in... In playing the in, victim, right? Yeah. Well, no, they were saying pathological in in um, that we all our heroes are criminals. In the, and I was like, what are they talking about? And um, But had to see how the thing went like wildfire through these prominent pro-life Catholics who were sharing it over and over. And I thought, Lord, we do have a lot of work as if these people who are well-educated in faith, who love you, are so blind to how this is an odious, just completely hateful um, depiction and discussion about the Black community and this particular man. I was like, we've got a problem. Like without any, any hit, not, not without a, a shred of shame, sharing this kind of horrible video. Uh, I just said, Lord, we need help. Now I've reached out to some of them and talked to them offline about it. And they've been just very dismissive. That's sad. I'm, I'm well familiar. Well, no, I, I shouldn't say well familiar. I know the video you're talking about. I mm-hmm. watched a few minutes of it and was like, this is not, <laughs> this is it's not sickening. worth watching. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. The thing that really bugs me about the way that's often shared is mm-hmm. not as a, like, I'm, you know, endorsing everything, but, but people will share it in this cowardly way and say, like, regardless of whether or not you agree, she makes good points or, or some, something like that, <laughs> right. right? Like yeah, they just sort of right. hide behind their noncommittal stance on it. Um, but they're yeah. still, but they're still perpetuating it. Right. And there's, there's nothing, Absolutely. there's nothing gospel centric in that entire video. And, exactly. Right. And as Catholics, mm-hmm. Um, I think we probably have a lot of people listening to this who are Christians and not even specifically Catholic as, as mm-hmm. Christians, let's just, let's just cast the net that widely as Christians, yeah. our mm-hmm. primary concern needs to be the gospel of Jesus Christ and how, Amen. how God's name is being magnified. Um, Amen. Hallelujah. Preach. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm serious. That's yes. Yeah, say it again. I just say it. I want to hear what you have to say. That's so beautiful. Yeah. So, I mean, the way I see it is, our primary concern needs to not be about whether or not our political party is going to win re-election or yes. whether or not our taxes are going to get lowered Amen. Or, or, or whether or not we're going to sleep a little bit more peacefully at night because the police aren't out to get us. That doesn't need to be mm-hmm. our concern. Our, our primary concern needs to be how is God's name being, being glorified. And, Amen. and we do that by, of course, directly glorifying God and worshiping him. But we also do that every time we recognize in each other that we are together image bearers of God. Yes. And, and that's the thing, you know, if I can't see, if I can't see the image of God of somebody else, I'm just so repulsed by them. I need to work on that. Yeah. Um, I need to work on that very much. So I had a, um, a picture actually that someone had shared with me is of Christ, but he has black skin. So people, I, I was just surprised that people didn't see Christ. One lady's like, I just see a black man with long hair. And what it is, is it's a, it looks like a painting and you can see that where his skin has been torn from the whipping and he's, he's fallen and his hair is in his face. You can't see his face. And he has a little, like a little crown of thorns, but it's kind of green. And you can see the cross in the background. And it says, I can't breathe. Cause remember Christ died of mm-hmm. asphy- asphyxiation. People lost their minds over that. They were like, that is going too far. And I'm like, what are you talking about? How dare you? Da, 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 da. And I was like, well, what do you see? They did not see Christ. Wow. They could not see, even though the cross was there, the, the marked skin, the, the, the crown of thorns, they could not see Christ. What they saw, they said they saw, just saw a black man falling down. And uh, they thought that we were trying to say that that was George Floyd. And I was like, no, this is actually Jesus Christ. <laughs> and you could use it for your meditation and whatnot. So I was like, Lord, we have, a, we have a problem. People can't even see you because the artist depicts you in a way that, you know, you're not beach Barbie Ken. <laughs> you know? yeah, my goodness. <laughs> this is exactly the point that Flannery O'Connor makes in one of her short stories called Parker's Back. Um, Mm -hmm. There's this man who gets a tattoo, a full body back tattoo of Jesus, but it's a Byzantine icon. And so it doesn't look 
the way that I guess you would think in the middle of the 20th century. And his, mm-hmm. he comes home and shows it to his wife, who's a Christian, a, hoping a, that a she will, Christian. yeah, professing Christian and mm-hmm. hoping, hoping that she will accept him because she hates his tattoos and hoping that if he gets a tattoo of Jesus, that she'll accept him. And then she doesn't recognize Jesus. She doesn't oh, know wow. who is on his back and she has no idea. And it's, so, oh, so not wow. only that, but then she proceeds to basically hit her husband yeah, like to, with a, with a broom handle or something. Yeah. So she's, oh. she's essentially whipping Christ Persecuting Jesus. because yeah. she doesn't recognize him. Recognize him. Oh, that is such a deep story. Yeah. You should, you should read that more. It's, it's, I mean, I, Flannery O'Connor is, uh, it's so the sto- short story is Parker's back. The author is Flannery O'Connor. Ah, O'Connor is one of our okay. favorite. Um, our favorite um, novelists. And she's a Southern writer. Writers. She was white, but she was very anti-racist. Oh yeah. my gosh, I got to check her out then. You I, definitely I, I've should. Heard so much of, I've heard so much about her, but I have to tell you, I am knee deep in Carmelite reading. Well, I do, I, I like the mystics. So, you know, St. Teresa of Avila, oh, St. John wonderful. of the Cross. Are I you a Carmelite, like Dominican. Yeah, I am. Oh, Very that's cool. wonderful. I am. So, um, yeah, that, which has been actually quite helpful for me to be able to deal with the kinds of... Um, hateful responses that I receive. So it's been uh, very helpful to have my uh, Carmelite spirituality help me deal with that, actually. Yeah. Um, Sally read something from Ter- Teresa of Avila about you know, not not defending yourself when insulted mm-hmm. and persecuted and how it costs you nothing to not defend yourself and how you can just um, mm-hmm. you know, take those afflictions for Christ and mm-hmm. um, just offer them up, offer them up, offer, yeah. the, offer them up. And then really say, you know what? I should be accusing myself of other sins anyway. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. St. Teresa of Avila is just marvelous. I love her, love her, love her. She, she fried my wig as they say. <laughs> <laughs> well gloria thank so, you so much for your time uh, uh, i know it's you, it's Zach it's late Sally. for you you're two hours mm-hmm. out of us there but thanks for making yeah, the time this has for been us. incredible thank it's you been a, a great discussion oh, yeah, thank you so much you know i'd love to come on some other time when we can all get it together great we would love to have you back yeah anyway i've enjoyed myself thank you so much for everything and god bless both of you thank you thank gloria. you so much thank god bless you. you sure okay god bless you take care mm-hmm.